Recently, I was listening to a pastor who I respect, and he talked about a question that he and his wife ask each other. Uh, when I heard this question, I thought that I had an, an answer to it. I feel comfortable that, with the answer that I have to it, but when I heard it, I knew this is the kind of question I'm just not ever going to be able to put down. I think this is the question that I'm, I'm kind of constantly carry with me, and this is it. What would we like for people to line up at the end of our lives and thank us for? What would you like for people to line up at the end of your life and thank you for? If you think of your life as a kind of investment, what is the return on investment that you want? And whatever your answer is to this question, that would serve as a kind of framework or definition for what winning, uh, a winning life would be like for you. And should someday people line up to express gratitude to you or for you, that would be like you won at life. And that's an experience that I would want for everyone, but I also recognize it's not an experience that everybody's going to have. Now, another thing that I recognize is there might be some of us in the room who think, I don't feel very comfortable with this question. Maybe this question feels arrogant. Maybe it feels self-important. Maybe it feels self-centered. And if anybody feels like that a little bit, that's okay. I want to share with you a story that might cause you to see this question differently. A quick heads up, uh, it's a funeral. It's a story about a funeral, and you have permission to laugh if you want to. Um, years ago, in another state, I officiated a funeral service that uh, continues to be the most awkward funeral that I've ever seen or heard of. I walked into the room uh, where the casket was, where the service was going to uh, take place. There was an art. There was a display of artwork by the deceased man. What made it weird is that his artwork were new drawings of his ex-wife who sat on the front row. Um, if you have artwork like that, that you thought maybe you wanted to display at your funeral, maybe don't. Okay? Maybe don't. It's weird for the rest of us. Now, there are normal things at the funeral, like people getting up and talking about the person who was deceased. And everybody who got up, uh, they, they shared different things. But this is the nicest thing. I'm going to tell you the nicest thing someone said about this man. He once got drunk, stole a motorcycle, and rode it through town naked. That was the nicest thing. This is where it stops being funny. Not one person, not one person expressed appreciation of any kind regarding this man. And this is where a question like this emerges as it's anything but arrogant. This is a really important question. Because when we go to a funeral of someone, who lived for themselves, who lived life for what they could get, and they never invested in anybody, and no one wants to stand up and express any gratitude whatsoever for that person, it feels empty, doesn't it? It's the kind of thing that would cause us to look in the mirror at ourselves and say, don't waste your life. On the opposite end of the spectrum, when we go to a funeral of someone who lived for what they could give to others, who invested in others, who positively impacted others, and people are happy to stand up and share stories of what they appreciate about this man or woman, it's inspiring, and it feels like a full life. Even if you don't know what your answer is to this question, that's okay. My hope for you is that you would be able to wrestle down what your answer is. Because if at some point people lined up to express gratitude to you or for you, and they did it for the very thing that is your answer to this question, it would be like you won the ultimate prize for how you lived your life. People who live with purpose, 
People who live on purpose are people who know the prize that they're after. So it's not surprising to us at all. It's not shocking at all that the Apostle Paul would use this kind of language, this perspective, to help connect us to really urgent truth. We've been looking at this each week. In 1 Corinthians 9, the Apostle Paul wrote, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I don't run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air, nor I strike a blow to my body. I engage in discipline on purpose. I make my body my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the what? For the prize. Now, the prize is not going to heaven. It's not salvation. That's not something we compete for. If we have a relationship with Christ, if, if we know what it is to be loved by him, to be forgiven, accepted by him, that's not something we worked for. That's not something we earned. He earned it for us. He was faithful on our behalf. We're saved by his life, not our own. We receive it as a gift. It's grace. And we accept it by faith. We simply say, Jesus, I trust in you. I give my allegiance to you. So once we are clear on that, now we're ready to understand, well, what is the prize the Apostle Paul was talking about? If you've been here over the past couple of weeks, I hope you remember what it is. The prize is helping other people to come to know Jesus and follow Jesus. People who don't know Jesus come to know him. People who know him grow in their relationship with him. If he had an answer to this question, if there was something he would want people to thank him for at the end of his life, he would probably sound something like this. He would want people to say, thank you for investing in me. Thank you for helping me grow in my faith. Thank you for the way that you lived your life and the things that you shared and the things that you taught. Thank you for helping me know Jesus and follow Jesus. That's the prize that he lived for. Now, if you are a Jesus follower, and I hope you are, if you are a Jesus follower, it's not winning to just pick something and run after it. Okay, that's not winning for a follower of Jesus. He is our king. He is our authority. We follow him. And so winning is running the race that he set out for us. It's running for the prize that he set out for us. And this is what it is for our church. Our prize is to lead people to be fully devoted followers of Jesus. We want people to, to come to know him. People who don't know him, we want them to know him. People who do know him, we want them to grow in their relationship with Jesus. That is the prize that we're after as a church. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, I hope you know what it means to be a masterpiece. We talked about that in our last message series. If you're a follower of Jesus, you should know what it means to be fully loved, fully accepted, fully forgiven, fully delighted in by him. And if you know all of that, there's something else. I'm going to share with you something you already know, but I'm going to say it in a way that maybe you've never thought of before. If you follow Jesus, it's because someone thought he was worth talking about and you were worth talking to. Someone thought he was worth talking about, and you were worth talking to. Now, imagine with me what would be different in your life and mine. What would be different if somewhere the constellation of people in the backstory of your life and the constellation of people in the backstory of my life lived as though Jesus wasn't worth talking about and we weren't worth talking to? 
This is why the Apostle Paul says this is so urgent. And he uses the imagery of athletes running after a prize. And he says, listen, if they are after something that's not even going to last, and they're willing to make all kind of miniature decisions in obscurity, and they're making pre-decisions now so they can be set up to win in crunch time later, if we're after something that's far more important, wouldn't we do the same thing? Wouldn't we make all kinds of pre-decisions now and, and orient our life in such a way now that when important moments come that we're ready to win? It's because of that. This has been our series thesis. It's our drumbeat throughout this series. Wise people don't just make good decisions. They make pre-decisions. Now we're calling this the pre-season series because we're trying to take a, se- a season as a church and collectively think about what kind of pre-decisions do we need to make so that we can win. And as we're thinking about that, each week we're looking at this passage. So I'd love it if you'd open up your phone, your favorite Bible app, and go to this passage, grab a Bible, and open up to Acts. It's in the second half of the New Testament. It's the fifth book, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. If you've gone to Romans, go back one. Acts chapter 2, verse 41 through 47. And we're looking at the very first church ever. And we're looking at them for a couple of reasons. One, um, they are an example to every church, so they're an example to our church. And each week we're looking at them from a little bit different angle because we just think if we can better understand what they were about, we'll be able to better understand what we should be about. What we're going to read takes place um, right after a guy named Peter. We know him as the Apostle Peter. He gave his first public sermon ever. It's about two months after Jesus had risen from the dead. This is what happened, starting in verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. What an incredible day. And then describing this church, very first church ever, from the very first day, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. They were devoted to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions and gave to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, singing and praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So if you have a Bible out, put a marker there. You can close it. We're going to come back uh, to a passage close to this in just a few minutes. But first, this is what I want us to do. I want us to look at what might have been the scouting report of this very first church. If we were going to write a summary sheet of what they were like, at least this would be included. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching and and to each other, devoted to the teaching of God's word, devoted to each other. They had inspiring stories of God at work. They had generosity and humility. They gathered in large groups. They gathered in small groups. Uh, They get together. uh, They enjoyed hospitality and good food with each other. And they were growing in number every single day. Because of this devotion that they shared, because of the unity that they had, it must have felt like the best kind of relationship possible with this new church. And we want to have that too, don't we? I mean, it's, it's almost insulting for me to say this to you, but isn't it true that we, I mean, it's just so obvious. It's just so obviously true. We all want the best kind of relationships possible, don't we? Yeah, we know that. In our dating relationships, you want the best kind of relationship possible. In your friendship, you want the best kind of relationship possible. With the people you work with, the people that you're in business with, if you're married, you want the best kind of relationship possible. 
And we want that here at church too. We think we can and we should experience the best kind of relationships possible even at church. And when we experience the best kind of relationship possible, it's like this. We have high trust, we have healthy expectations, and it feels like this. It just feels great. No relationship ever starts here. Any relationship can get here. And this is how we get here. We develop high trust and healthy expectations. So if you've been here over the past couple of weeks, which comes first, trust or expectations? Trust, that's right. Trust needs to come first. And the way that we develop kind of high trust, off the church trust with each other is we all choose this. We choose the elements of trust. We choose to be honest, safe, and reliable. This is not a one-way street. We just don't get it from the other person. They need to receive it from us. Everybody involved, everybody in the church, every, everyone who's here, we all choose this together. And then once we have this kind of foundation of building trust, high-quality trust, on top of that, we start to build healthy expectations. And we don't put those on other people. These are things that we each give each other permission to expect. It sounds like this. Everybody involved says, I give you permission to count on me. This very first church, from the very first day, they experienced the best kind of relationship possible with their church, at their church. We think we can and should experience that too. This very first church, it was, it was the kind of community that it must have felt like the most honest, the most safe, the most reliable group of people they had ever been a part of. And they were so eager. They were so eager to be able to count on each other. If somebody had a need, somebody over here sold their property so they could fund solving that person's need. Who wouldn't want to be a part of a church like that? It's no wonder that this church was growing in number every day. The first sermon that Peter ever gave, when people realized Jesus rose from the dead, 3,000 said, I want to be a part of that. I give my life to him. And each day after that, it grew. As people watched these people gather together the way they loved each other, what they experienced with each other, and others were thinking, if that comes from following Jesus, count me in. I want that also. And if you if you've never read the book of Acts, please read the book of Acts and you'll see all kinds of beautiful, amazing things happening with this church. But we should be clear about something. The way that this church grew, the impact they had with each other and the impact they had in their community cannot be reduced to the choices they made. God was at work. The Holy Spirit of God was working in them and with them and through them, right? And so it couldn't have happened without God and yet, God moved, and it required them participating with God as well. And this is what I want our church to be clear on. This is what we need to be clear on. If our church is, is going to grow, and we're going to have great impact with one another and, and our community, it's not going to depend solely on us and our choices. Our choices are not enough. We can't grow our church on our own. We can't have this great impact on our own. God could do it on his own, but he won't. God could grow our church on his own, but he won't do that. He wants us to join him and follow him and partner with what he's doing. So God works, and we respond and partner with him in what he's doing. What we're going to do is we're going to see just one of many things you can read in the New Testament that is an example of that. And we're going to pick up at the end of chapter 2 and roll in to chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, pull it out again, open up your phone again, and we're going to read these handful of verses together. I want you to just be thinking about this story. What do you, what do you observe? Chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. 
One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer. Remember, this early church, they were going to the temple every day. Uh, Now, a man who was lame from birth, this doesn't mean he had a bad sense of humor. He's crippled. You guys know that. Now, a man, (laughs) I'm sorry, will you guys forgive that dad joke? Starting over. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer. At three in the afternoon. Now a man was lame from birth, was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going to the temple courts. What better place uh, to, to beg if you are not able to work as people going in and out of a place of worship? When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John, and Peter said, look at us. So the man gave him his attention, expecting to get something from them. He's thinking, oh, wow, these guys are going to give me something good. Then Peter totally disappointed the guy and said, silver or gold, I do not have. I don't have any money to give you, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. And when all the people saw him walking around and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement. What were they filled with? Wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is profound. God chose to move through what Peter said. And this guy He's healed. It's, a, it's amazing. Now, this is, this is not a trick question. This is not a trick question. What were people filled with wonder and amazement over? Was it how this guy's beliefs about God might have changed? Or was it, were they filled with wonder and amazement over his experience? It was over his experience. We do not capture people's attention by what we believe. People's attention is captured. People's attention are captured by the experiences we have because of the one in whom we believe. So if you're a note taker, would you write this down? It's easier to deny someone's belief than it is to deny someone's experience. It's easier to deny someone's belief than it is to deny someone's experience. And I'm not trying to suggest that our beliefs don't matter. I am a pastor. I'm teaching right now. Clearly, I'm convinced our beliefs matter. They are very important. But that's not what captures people's attention. That's what we've experienced because of the one in whom we believe. Now, if there's a streak of skepticism in you and you read this story, you might be wondering, was this guy really crippled to begin with? If you're thinking, maybe he was faking, I don't have any evidence to prove, to prove otherwise to you. There might have even have been people there that day who were thinking to himself, wait a second, has this guy been crippled all along? I mean, imagine if someone rolled up in a wheelchair right now to the very front, and I said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk, and they jumped up and started dancing around. Are you thinking, miracle? Or are you thinking, wait a second, what are you guys trying to pull right now? Right? But the, you know, I mean, if this guy was a con man, perhaps, perhaps, you know, he was just really good at keeping a secret. Perhaps he had guys in his inner circle who were really good at keeping the secret who would pick him up and carry him there every day knowing that he could walk, who would pick him up and carry him home every day knowing he could walk all along. But even if that were the case, I think a miracle still occurred because how would you explain that this guy all of a sudden decided to change his mindset? He's not going to be a con man anymore. He's not going to have a victim mindset. He's going to have a mindset of bracing his 
ability and his responsibility. But see, the thing that made this guy's story unique is that the people knew him. He had been doing that for years. They saw what his legs looked like. They saw what atrophied muscles looked like. They knew that this guy wasn't able to walk. And all of a sudden, he is up and he is dancing around and he's praising God. And they want to know what happened. Another way to say that is they are demanding an explanation. Here's just like a little insight into you and me. This is an insight just into people. This is how we operate. We're most ready to receive an explanation when we're unable to provide an explanation. We're most ready to receive an explanation when we're unable to provide an explanation. And what do you do when there's something that's valuable to you and it's broken and you don't think you can fix it and someone picks it up and they just fix it? What do you say? How did you do that? What do we do when someone, we think something can't be done and then we see someone do it, they just accomplish it. What do we say? How did you do that? It's in moments like that when we're not able to explain something, our curiosity is at its max. This is what I'm suggesting. Followers of Jesus, let's leverage that on purpose. Let's use that intentionally. When God does something in your life, when God's working in your life, don't hide it. Live your life in such a public way that other people can see what God is doing in your life. And when they're not able to explain it and they want to understand more about what it is, share with them. And this kind of thing comes up in conversation probably more frequently than we may realize. This is the kind of stuff that's come up in conversation with me. Maybe you've experienced it. It sounds like some version of this. How are you? How are you so calm and peaceful when you've got this scary thing going on in your life? How are you able to smile and laugh when it seems like everybody else would be down in the dumps if they were going through what you were going through? How are you able to forgive when this person hurt you so badly? How are you not bitter when that person, they broke your trust in such a horrible way? How are you able to be grateful? How are you able to make it? How are you able to be confident when, how are you not freaking out right now when it's, I would be scared if I was going through what you're going through. How are you not freaking out? When someone says something like that to you, it is an invitation. It is an on-ramp for you just to explain to them what can only be explained by what God is doing in your life. I want to inspire you today. It's a, this is an invitation for you to tell your story. And the best story you can tell is the one that only you can tell. Yours. The best story you can tell is the one that only you can tell. When God does something in your life, that's him doing his part. I've got a story like that. There was a time in my life I thought forgiveness was impossible. I thought I would live in the prison of my own unforgiveness for the rest of my life, and I would just try to grind it out. But God did something. He did a miracle in my life, and I was able to forgive when I thought that it would be impossible. Maybe sometime you and I will have a cup of coffee, and I could tell you more about that story. But that, that's God doing his part. When I tell somebody else about it or you share with somebody else about it, that's us doing our part. Now, throughout this series, we've tried to make a big emphasis. This is not just us individually. This is us together. How do we do what I'm talking about? Sharing our story. How do we do that together? I've got an answer. But before I give you the answer, I want to read the next couple of sentences that we skipped. Chapter 3, verse 11 says this. While the man, he held on to Peter or John. He's new to walking. And there's this massive crowd gathering around him. He's probably a little intimidated, so he's holding on to these dudes. All the people were astonished and came running to them in a place called Solomon's Colonnade. And when Peter saw this, he said to them, 
You can kind of read the rest of chapter 3 this time, sometime this week. I hope you do. But really, when it says Peter said to them, Peter stood up and he just, he gave a sermon. Preached another epic sermon. There's all these people gathered around. They recognize something happened to this guy. I can't explain. They come running up wanting to hear the explanation. Peter stands up and explains it to them by preaching the gospel. That's basically our approach every weekend. Believe it or not, that's what we're trying to do right now. You've experienced God at work in your life. Someone wants to better understand what they're seeing in you. You invite them to come to church with you. A pastor stands up and explains the gospel to the crowd. You experience God doing something in you. Somebody in your life wants to better understand what they see you've experienced. You invite them to come to church with you. A pastor stands up and explains the gospel to the crowd. This is how the church has been doing from the very beginning. And we don't want to just do it accidentally. We don't want to do it haphazardly. We want to do it intentionally. And so today I'm introducing something that actually Pastor Caleb talked about when he was explaining Ridgefest. It's this, invest and invite. And by invest, we mean be a great friend. Be a friend who cares for and cares about your friends, who loves them well. Be a neighbor who not only cares about but cares for your neighbors. Be a coworker who not only cares about but cares for your coworkers. For all the people who are, who are in the orbit of your life, love them. Be a great friend. Be a great coworker. Be a great family member. Be invest in them. Care about and care for. That's what love does, right? We talked earlier about an empty life is a life that doesn't invest in others, but a full life is one in which we do invest in others. This is what love does. And then invite is pretty straightforward. Look for opportunities to ask somebody to come with you to learn more about what we're experiencing here together. And it would be normal. It would be understandable if somebody said, Rick, it feels like, are people our projects now? Is that, is that what this is about? And the answer is no. People are not projects. That is a horrible way to approach a person. People are not projects. Do you know why we do this? Why we invest? Because that's what love does. Do you know why we invite people? People share what they love with the people they love. People share what they love with the people they love. Have you found a new restaurant that you think is great? Aren't you going to tell your friends about it? Because you love your friends. Have you found a gas station that was like a dollar cheaper than every other gas station in town? Aren't you going to tell your friends? Yeah, you would. No one ever had to teach us this. We've been doing this since we were kids. People naturally do this. They share what they love with the people they love. You might be here today because somebody loves you. You might be in this room today. You might be watching online right now because somebody cares about you because they have experienced something so profound by knowing Jesus. It hasn't just changed their life. It's giving them new life. And they don't want to keep it to themselves. And because they care about you, they want you to experience it too. And so as a church, what if we did this? What if we said, this is, this is going to be who we are. This is going to be what we do. We're pre-deciding. This is our lifestyle now. We're going to invest and invite because this is what love does and when we invite people we're not just going to say hey come to my church sometime we're going to say come sit with me right and if you're a good friend you're going to take him to lunch afterwards but we're going to say this <laughs> not just come to my church sometime come sit with me how does that sound does that sound good can we do that now throughout this series and even earlier i talked about we've got to have high trust and healthy expectations how does that play out with this to feel comfortable 
inviting people to come to church with you, you have to have some level of trust. In order to feel comfortable to invite somebody to come, you've got to have some level of trust. And this is how I know it applies to all of us because it is not out of the ordinary for some of you guys to text me on Saturday night and say, my friend is coming. Is it going to be weird tomorrow? Right? <laughs> my friend is finally coming with me. What's going to happen tomorrow? You just want a little assurance that, church, that you're not going to be embarrassed. The church is going to be weird. That's okay. You guys think I'm joking. I ain't joking. You do that. You know who I'm talking to. <laughs> but I can relate to that. Years ago in another state, Heather and I, we lived uh, on a cul-de-sac and we had great neighbors and our friendships were growing. And actually one of those neighbors we, we're still really close to uh, today. And because we cared about them, uh, we wanted them to come to church with us. They didn't go to church anywhere and it seemed like they weren't interested in church at all, much less coming to church uh, with us. But it was something we would invite them to do. One Sunday morning, I get up on the platform and I'm getting ready to preach and I catch out of the corner of my eye, I got two neighbors sitting on the back row. I had my own freak out moment because I didn't want the pastor to say something dumb or weird. And I was the pastor, okay? <laughs> now, it takes trust, but it's not just trust with the guy who has the microphone. We're trusting, we're trusting, our, we're trusting people on the serve team. You know, our, we have an incredible serve team, and, and they ensure that we're, we're safe. We've got a guest services team. We've got, we've got the people on the kitchen team, and they're working hard to make sure this is warm, welcoming, friendly, hospitable place. It's... It's the kids' ministry team. It's all the, all the volunteers who work on the kids' ministry team. If you invite a friend and they got kids, you want them to go over there. You want it to be as easy as possible to check in their kids. And you want it to be the kind of experience that they feel confident leaving their kids with strangers. But it's not just that. It's not just trusting in all the hundreds of awesome volunteers who serve in this church. It's trust that's extended to everybody else who's here. Because we're counting on that everyone is holding on to our value of honor guests enthusiastically. It kind of requires trust that we all take hospitality and kindness seriously. And what I'm talking about is the intersection of high trust and healthy expectations. Years ago, um, I was 18. It was Christmas Day. It was the Christmas after I'd graduated from high school. And for you to understand this story, I'm curious, does anyone in here have like weird division lines in your family and there's like some parts of the family that are weird and you don't know very well and you're kind of dis... Anybody else got that Jerry Springer family too? Just okay. I got that kind of family. It's Christmas morning. I get phone rings. My grandmother hands me the phone. It's my aunt who's on the other side of one of those lines. And she says, Rick, I have a graduation present I've been holding for you. I want you to come over here and get it today. And I said, okay, thank you. And I didn't want to go, but my grandmother talked me into going. She's like, your aunt's got a gift for you. Just go. So I drive over to her house, knock on the door. Someone says, come in. I come in. Everyone's still in their Christmas pajamas, wrapping paper everywhere. People are kind of messing around with the gifts they got that morning. And I said, uh, Aunt Latrell invited me over. And they're like, oh, she's in the back. And I see her in the other room. And she says, hi, Rick. And she goes back to doing what she's doing. And so I just stand there. You feel awkward. How do you think I felt? Five minutes of that feels like an eternity. It is so uncomfortable, it's almost physically painful. And after about five minutes, I said, Well, I guess I'm going to go. And I said, Thanks for coming. And I left. And if you're wondering, did I ever get a present? No, I never did. I hope you're watching. 
Now, now, why did I tell you this story? Just to remind us all, just to remind us all of something we already know. There's a big difference between inviting someone and welcoming someone. There can be a world of difference between inviting someone and welcoming someone. We have a prize that we're running for. This is our prize, to lead people to be fully devoted followers of Jesus. We want people who don't know Jesus to know Jesus. We want people who know Jesus to grow in their relationship with him. And as we run, this is the kind of team we want to be. This is the kind of church we want to be. It's summed up by our vision statement. It's aspirational. We want, it says this, we want to be a church of all cultures where curious, skeptical, and hurting people love to attend. That's the kind of church we want to be. We want to be welcoming. I'm going to share something. I'm going to put it on the screen. It's going to be like so obvious. Why do we need to, think, why do we need to even say it out loud? But the more we think about it, I think the more serious it will become. Our vision will be our vision when it's our vision. Our vision will be our vision when it's our vision. We want to be a church of all cultures where curious, skeptical, and hurting people love to attend. So, here are some possible next steps. Here are some things that I'm inviting us to pre-decide to say, I'm in, I want to do this. The first one is this. Predecide that our vision really is our vision. We want to be a church of all cultures where curious, skeptical, and hurting people love to attend. The second one is this. To invest and invite. This is our lifestyle. This is our approach. We're just pre-deciding. We're going to invest in people because that's what love does, and we're going to invite people because people share what they love with who they love. I began with a question, what will we like for people to line up at the end of our lives and thank us for? I would imagine that there's going to be a lot of variety and nuance in our answers individually, and that's okay. But it's my hope and my prayer that collectively there's unity in our answer. That we would be a collection of people for whom or to whom other people would say, Thank you for investing in me. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for helping me know and follow Jesus. And pray with me. Heavenly Father, it is a privilege to pray for you, to you, to know that when we come to you in prayer, we come with confidence, with no fear, because we're totally accepted because of Christ, that you have made your love displayed in an undeniable way through Jesus and what he has done on our behalf. And God, we thank you for all the people, all the people who are in our life story who you've used to help us better know and follow. And God, would you give us the gift of being that to other people? May we be a church. May we be a church of all kinds of different people who love to come, love to come because they find healing for their hurts. They find safety to process skepticism. They find truth in response to their questions. May we be a church full of people who are growing in our devotion 
to Jesus. And may we be a church who we help others do the same. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.